Last week we looked at the first five verses of John chapter 1. I have to say this, um, if you've missed the first two messages that we gave in John, this is the third one, I really encourage you to go back and listen to those. They're really foundational for what we're about to look at. I don't think we can truly and fully understand what the Apostle John is trying to tell us if we haven't laid the foundation of those, those first few verses in particular. He's going to write some things that simply won't make sense to us if we don't understand this first part. And so I, I encourage you to go back and listen to those. If you're not sure how, just you can ask me at some point. I can point it out to you or, or whatever. But it's really important to lay that foundation. John wants us to have no doubt concerning the identity of the person he is going to write about in his gospel, the next 20 chapters. So he begins with this deep and careful exposition of the Logos, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. This one, he tells us, has existed from all eternity. Like God the Father, he never came into being, but has been face to face with the Father from eternity past. This one is God. Through him, everything that has ever existed came into being, and nothing that exists came into being without him. One thing in particular came into being through him, called life. Apart from Jesus, there is no life, physically or spiritually. Furthermore, his life is the light of all mankind. Every person is created in the image of God. Because of this, we reflect the light of Christ. But because of sin, the light has become broken and jagged. It is no longer a pure reflection of the pure and true light of Christ. Jesus, at one point during his ministry, said these incredible words, and I don't fully understand them, but he said this, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? But thank the Lord, verse 5 doesn't end on a note of darkness. On the contrary, John gives us a great statement of victory. The darkness did not wrestle the light down. This means that you and I as believers are already operating from a position of victory. The light always wins. So I've entitled today's message, The True Light. So we will look at John chapter 1 and verses 6 through 13. We won't quite finish the entire prologue. We'll finish the prologue next week, uh, Lord willing. But um, we will look at these, uh, what is it, eight verses or so. So let's read these together. <clears throat> John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. This is the word of God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we just consider briefly these great words that you inspired your apostle to write, we ask that your spirit would have free reign in this room, in our hearts, in our minds to understand the light that you have and that you're pouring forth through the truth of your word. We pray that as Christians we would be encouraged this morning knowing at every moment that darkness did not wrestle the light down and that we are as Christians living from a position of victory in Christ. And so we ask this morning humbly for your presence to be with us and it's in Jesus' name we ask, amen. In verses 6 through 13, which we just read, John is delving a little deeper into the idea that he presented in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, could not wrestle it down, or did not wrestle it or pin it down. As you can see, John introduces us to the idea that something went terribly wrong. Why is there this darkness? And this notion is that which he carries into today's text, beginning in verse 6. So let's look at verses 6 through 9 to begin with. The witness of John the Baptist. The very first thing we need to clear up right out of the gate is that John, this John being spoken of in verse 6, is not John the Apostle, the writer. He's actually talking of a different John, John the Baptist. It's easy to confuse. John was a very common name back in those days, and it's a very common name today. And so confusion can arise as to which John is being spoken of. I don't want you to have that confusion. It's very clear from the context that John the Apostle, the author of the Gospel, is speaking of John the Baptist, the author of the gospel never refers to himself as John, but rather he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 6 opens with the words, There was a man sent from God. In the Greek, we might say something like, There was a man who came to be who was sent from God. Not, it's not totally accurate, but this idea is that he came into being. You may not have caught this, but John is intentionally drawing a clear distinction between the Logos, who always existed. He never uses that verb, came into being, for the Logos. But this man, John, he came to be. There was a point in history at which this man, John the Baptist, came into existence. There was a time at which he did not exist. And this stands in sharp contrast, and John is doing this on purpose, with the Word, the Logos, who was already there in the beginning. John, as we will learn later, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now, some of you are looking at me and going, uh, yeah, Kevin, have you lost your mind? Because this is the New Testament we're reading in. 
Yeah, it is the New Testament we're reading in. Um, and yeah, I probably have lost my mind, but we're going to continue on with these thoughts. What's he doing here in the New Testament, this Old Testament prophet? Remember, the events of John the Baptist's life all took place before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, John the Baptist is the culmination of the Old Testament tradition of prophets who are called and ordained by God to bring a message to the people. John is unique for a couple of reasons. Number one, his birth and ministry were foretold by previous prophets. So Moses, Isaiah, and Malachi all spoke of this coming one before the Messiah. And the second thing was that he was called and ordained while still in his mother's womb. By Jesus' own words, John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus' idea of greatness is obviously different than yours and mine. Think of the miracles of Moses and Elijah and Elisha. Think of the massive prophetic writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah, giving us glimpses into the coming Messiah and the age he will bring. Think of Daniel, advising and even defying the most powerful king in the known world in the name of the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar. There he was, interpreting dreams, foretelling the coming of all the kingdoms of the Gentiles with whom the Jews would have to interact in the coming centuries. But in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least, he adds on, in the kingdom of God, is greater than he. What made John great? What is greatness? What is greatness according to Christ? What made John so great? As far as I can tell, the best guess I can make is it was his proximity to Jesus. He was near Jesus in both time and space. His role as the immediate forerunner of the Messiah, that was what made him great. As far as we know, John the Baptist never performed a miracle, and he never wrote any books. He simply declared the message God gave him to declare. Makes me think this isn't, my, isn't in my notes, but sometimes we get so, so confused. Jesus says, um, you know, these are great works that I'm doing, but, you know, uh, you're going to do even greater works than these. And what does our mind go toward? Bigger miracles, flashier, huger, whatever it is. We, that's where our mind goes. That's not where Jesus' mind is when it comes to greatness. What is it? Closeness to Christ. Closeness to Christ. That's greater. And so we need to get this, this idea of flashiness out of our brains. That has nothing to do with greater in the economy of Jesus Christ. He says John the Baptist was the greatest prophet. Never did a miracle, never wrote a book. He simply was close to the Lord. John knew, John the Baptist knew, he was on the cusp of some great work of God. I don't know 
how he knew this. I don't know whether God spoke to him or revealed it to him in a dream or simply infused John with this knowledge, but John knew. I think we see this in a very human way later on when John sends some of his disciples to Jesus. John's sitting there in prison. He's like, this doesn't seem like the cusp of a very great thing. And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or are we waiting for someone else? There he was sitting in prison, awaiting execution ultimately, and nothing seems to be happening. And John, as a human being, has his doubts, which Jesus quickly disabuses him of. I think to some degree all of us can relate to John the Baptist here, at least somewhat, for his questioning of God's plan and timing. John knows he's doing God's work, a great prophetic work. And yet, when he looks around, all he sees is corrupt rulers and prison walls. Don't be discouraged, Christian. God is doing great things. Our passage goes on to say that this man, John the Baptist, came to be a witness. This word witness is the Greek word marturia, from which we get our word martyr. It's a legal word, meaning one who has come to court to give his sworn testimony. You swear to sell, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That's what John is doing. He came to be a witness. The next thing our passage tells us is that John came to bear witness to the light. Now, this has troubled me for many weeks now as I've been studying uh, these first 18 verses. And I'll explain to you why and then explain to you how I got past uh, how it troubled me. So if you'll look at the next uh, headline there, I have the light and the light. You'll notice that the light is capitalized the first time, and it's in little letters the second time. The Apostle John, the writer, uses the word light in two different ways in this passage. In the Greek, there are certain rules that hint at and indicate this quite plainly, but it is very difficult to translate into English. I really don't want to go into the difference between nominative and genitive pronouns and nouns in Greek. I don't think it's necessary. The, com the complexities will only befuddle us this morning, which is not my plan. But for those of you interested in studying this difference between the way John uses the light in different ways, there are many, many great books out there, and uh, most good theologians recognize this difference. Anyway, the first way John uses the word light is to point out the light, capital L, that is in the Logos. That which is Christ's by his very nature. He is the source of the light, like the sun. It is this light that has its source in the Logos, the word, Jesus Christ. The other way John uses the word light is what we might call derivative light. Or another way to think of it is that it is light reflected, not direct light from the divine source. 
but rather reflected light, like a mirror. In humanity, the reflected light is imperfect. It has broken, jagged edges, and the reason is that we are broken and sometimes jagged people because of sin. Every human being is created in the image of God, so the light does not just go away because of sin, but it is certainly damaged because of sin. And not just a little damaged. It's not just slightly marred by the presence of sin. It is absolutely, completely damaged in every aspect by sin. Every aspect of our human experience is marred by the presence of sin. John has both of these ideas in, of light in mind as he is moving forward in the prologue. We have light, capital L, which has its source in Christ. But we also have light, lowercase l, present, but poorly reflected in the rest of humanity. Here's why I found this troubling. In verses 4 and 5, the light that is being spoken of is the capital L light, the perfect light, the very source of light in the Logos, the Word, Jesus Christ. But in verse 7, it says that John is sent to bear witness of the lowercase l light, this light that has been marred by sin. In verse 8, we have both types of light. The first is capital L light. The second is lowercase l light. And the same is true, verse 9. To make this a little clearer, because that was a lot of words. And most of you, I could see your eyes glazing over. Let's just look at these verses with this distinction. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, the broken, marred, reflected light in man, that all through him might believe. He was not that light. He was not the logos. He was not the source of light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, the broken, marred light that every human has. That, the Logos, was the true light which lights every man coming into the world. So then these verses tell us that John the Baptist came to bear witness of the light that is in men, the light which has become broken and marred and damaged because of sin. This is now not how I understood this passage in the past. But when we pause and we look at the message that John the Baptist preached, it begins to fall into place very nicely. John the Baptist did not come preaching the gospel as you and I understand the gospel, although it was certainly an evangelistic message. Rather, he came preaching a message of repentance and warning because the kingdom of God, he said, was at hand. He pointed out to men their sinfulness, their need to repent of their sins before God and clean up their act because the Messiah was coming. We look at his message and we think, hmm, that's not a very powerful message, right? If you have two coats and the guy next to you doesn't have a coat, then give one of your coats to the guy next to you. Or if you're a Roman soldier, uh, stop complaining about your work and be satisfied with your wages. You know, it's not the kind of message that brings us weeping to our knees, but 
This was his message. Look, you guys are broken. And God is on his way. You guys are broken. And God is on his way. Messiah was coming right around the corner at hand. This coming one would be seated on the throne of King David to save, but also at some point to sit in judgment over the covenant breakers. And it was right at the very door. That was John's warning. So, in this sense, John the Baptist was bearing witness of the lowercase l light, reminding men that they were poor reflections of the true light, the logos. And they needed to get right with God before the judgment. This is very much the idea the Apostle Paul is fleshing out in Romans 2. And I just have to pause here again. My notes are a little shorter, so I think I do have some time to do this. This has been the message of many great preachers right from the time of Reformation, even some before then. How is it that some of these men that went out to fields and on street corners and began to preach drew the attention of the people and and had them convicted by the Spirit of God in their hearts to start a movement toward Christ? They dangled them over hell for a little bit and said, that's what's in the future for those of you that remain in your sin. And then... He offered them the safety net, Jesus Christ, and said, but you don't have to go there. Their message was always, you are broken, repent. You are broken, repent. Every one of us in this room this morning can think of a way that we too are broken. Utterly disobedient to the word of God. And God is saying there is going to be no movement of the Spirit until you humble yourself before him and deal with that thing. And we have to. We think we're pretty good people, aren't we? We dress pretty nicely to come to church, don't we? We look nice. We even get our hair cut sometimes. Or shave, right, Jonathan? The fact of the matter is, if your deepest thoughts were put on this screen right here, you might run out of this room so embarrassed you would never come back. God sees it like it's on that screen. And he is saying to you, the light is broken. Look at this. I've put before you the perfect true light, the Logos, Jesus Christ. This is whom you are supposed to be reflecting and look at what you've done with it. But that's not the end of the message. This can be restored. This can be repaired. What are you going to do with it? And he lays that before every single one of us this morning. Do we want a church that moves forth in victory out of this place? It's not going to happen until every single one of us deals with our sin. That's the power of the gospel. Because it's the only hope. Picture for a moment, if you will, a person dies, 
They're standing before the judgment seat of God. They had never seen a Bible, let alone read it. They had never heard the gospel. They had ever, never even heard the name of Jesus. So they say to God, if I would have heard, I would have believed. I, you can't judge me based on what I never knew. How, how can you pass judgment on me? I never once was exposed to the light. So what does God do? Hey, you've got a point there. I'll judge you based on how you've passed judgment on others. And if you, if you sitting there are anything like me standing here, when someone passes judgment on me, when someone accuses me, I give myself every excuse in the book as to why I did what I did. I wasn't feeling good. I was tired. I was this. I was that. I was trying to do the, the very best I knew how. On and on and on. I, I will give myself every excuse and then walk away guiltless at least in my mind, if not in my conscience. But when it's my turn and I'm sitting in judgment against another person and accusing them, my verdict is simply guilty. You knew what was right. Guilty. No excuses, no pardon, no mercy, no grace. Jesus told a story like this. Over in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, I have to tell the whole story. I know it's a long reading, but uh, I, it only makes sense with the whole story in front of us. Then Peter came and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter's already thinking, seven is ridiculous. So we can tell it from his words here. As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, which I'm sure Peter was going, oh, phew, but 70 times seven. And I'm sure Peter wilted at that point. Therefore, Jesus teaches, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. By the way, that was a ridiculous statement. There was no way this man could pay back 10,000 talents. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother 
from your lips. Oh, wait a minute. From your heart. I mean, there's a lot that could be taught from that parable, but I think just as a revealer of the nature of the human heart is the way we want to consider it this morning. We expect every excuse when we do wrong and we do not offer any mercy or grace when it's someone else. So here this person stands before God and God judges them according to the judgment they have passed on others. Every single moral judgment they have ever uttered, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do this, you ought to do that, is now used to evaluate their own life. God plays back through their mouth every moral judgment they've ever made and they are found guilty because they didn't even do the things that they judged others for. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And this is the argument of the Apostle Paul, and he continues to make it all the way through Romans 2, or through most of it. It's kind of like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. But objective moral values do exist, and we all know it. Therefore, God exists. Furthermore, we are created in his image, and every person has some degree of this broken, jagged, reflected light within them. To know that we are morally culpable before a perfectly just God. And that brings us to verse 10. The purpose of the light. Verses 10 through 13. The purpose of the light. Why did the light come into the world, in other words? Well, the first thing we see is the rejection of the light. Verses 10 and 11 are a stinging indictment on all humanity, and in particular, the Jews. This one, the Logos, the Word, he who was face to face with the Father from eternity past, through whom all things were created. He was in the world, and the world did not know him. In the Greek, it says that the world rejected him and even his own people rejected him. Listen to the Apostle Paul's commentary again on the world that does not know Christ. Again, this is from Romans 2, but this is verses 4 through 11. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. 
but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. I don't care whether you're a king or a pauper. I don't care if you have Bill Gates' billions or Kevin's nickels. You stand before God as morally culpable for every action, every thought. And God will judge. So we see Christ was in the world, past tense, and the world did not know him. So he was going to have to do something unique, something radical, something that had never been done before in order to make himself known to his creation and his people. And that happens in the first five words of verse 14 which, Lord willing, we will look at next week. Thankfully, again, our passage does not end there with the rejection of the light, but it ends with the reception of the light. As has been God's way since the beginning, God set aside a remnant. The final two verses of today's passage is a glimmer of hope, but as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God. That phrase, children of God, we hear it so often that we don't actually think of it, do we? We kind of sweep over it and, yeah, children of God this and children of God that. And we never really pause and consider what does that mean? Who is God? The creator and redeemer of the entire universe. And he has offered you adoption into his family. This word received, as many as received him, it carries with the idea of reaching out your hand to receive, to take hold of something offered. I think we have to ask the question at this point, why did only a handful of people respond to Jesus in a different way than all of those that rejected him? What did they know that others had missed? What did they see that others did not? What did they hear that others did not? Were they more intelligent? Were they morally superior to everyone else? Or on the flip side, were they more desperate than others? Did they need some religious experience without which they could not feel fulfilled? What was it? that caused some to receive him, where others would yell, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. Well, before we consider what that was, let's just note that Jesus did not give people any wiggle room to be neutral about him. They either loved him 
or they hated him. It seems no one just shrugged their shoulders and walked away without caring. People either became passionately devoted to Jesus Christ or they desperately tried to disbelieve him right out of existence. Sound familiar? Thankfully, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer in his writings. Those that received him and believed in his name were born. Number one, not of blood. This is not talking about the red fluid, by the way, that is flowing through you. That sometimes leaks out your nose when you get punched. This is talking about your heritage, your genealogy. Those that received him did not do so because they were the right race or the right skin color or spoke the right language or anything like that. The Jews, of course, were particularly prone to think that it was because they were the seed of Abraham and this made them special recipients of God's salvation. It was John the Baptist who said to the unrepentant Jewish leadership, after all, do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You're no more special with your blood, with your genealogy, than those rocks sitting over there. That's not going to bring you salvation. So those who believed in Jesus did so not because they were born in the right lineage. John takes that off the table and says, nope. Nor were they born of the will of the flesh. The other thing that the Apostle John decisively rules out is that some received Jesus because they had a stronger willpower to just continue. They were not somehow able to conjure up within themselves the strength of character to choose Jesus. Believing in Jesus, becoming a child of God, had absolutely nothing to do with their human capacity, fleshly speaking, to will themselves into being children of God. This is like the story when Jesus asked the disciples who men were saying that he was. And Peter comes along and he says, of course it's Peter, always the bold one, steps forward and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Look at what Jesus does not say to Peter. Good job, Peter. How did you figure that out? You are obviously smarter than all the other disciples. After all, they're just fishermen. You must have attended the University of Jerusalem and got your PhD in Messianic philosophy in order to take all these scriptures and triangulate them to where I am. No. What does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but... My Father who is in heaven. Finally, they were not born of the will of man. So nobody else figured this out for you either. Your parents didn't do it. Your grandparents didn't do it. Your brothers and sisters didn't do it. Your teachers and professors didn't do it. It wasn't up to any man. 
that you have been made a child of God. What's left? John takes everything off the table. I don't want you to be proud about a single thing about who you are, where you were born, how smart you are, how stupid you are, how strong you are, how weak you are. It's all off the table. What does he say? You were born of God. End of story. Salvation is of God. Those that receive Christ, those that believe in his name, do so because God initiated salvation, authored salvation, accomplished salvation, and finished salvation by his sovereign will. And he opens his gracious hands to us, freely offering this gift by his infinite love, mercy, and grace. Because he knew how broken we are. And you know it too, if you'll look within yourselves, truly. Had God not done it all, your chances of achieving salvation on your own is precisely zero. If you are a child of God, you receive no credit whatsoever for your role in being born of God. The other day, we went to my niece's birthday party. She turned nine. And while I was enjoying an amazing piece of chocolate cheesecake, I turned and said to her, thank you so much for being born. She smiled, even at the age of nine, knowing that she deserved no credit whatsoever in my celebration of her birthday. Her mom, on the other hand, but that's another story. Let's consider some practical applications from today's text. I'm not going to finish that thought. I'm sure you can draw that out to where it needs to be. Let's consider some practical applications that we can carry, each one of us can carry into this coming week. Number one, the good news of the gospel demands a sober appreciation of the bad news of our condition apart from Christ. I need to say that again because it is so often missed. So often the gospel is presented with if you accept Jesus, your life is going to get better and you'll feel good and you, and you won't get sick and your job will fall into place and you'll never suffer poverty and you'll never blow your Achilles tendon. I'm sure I saw someone coming in here with crutches. There he is. Yeah. When you receive Christ, just your life just becomes so wonderful. And so people hear a message like this and they're like, that's what I want. I don't want any more pain. I don't want any more suffering. And that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is it's good news because you are so broken, so jagged. You are such a poor reflection of the light of Christ that you need him. And without him, you are utterly hopeless. That's the good news of the gospel. We have to be sober about our appreciation of the bad news of who we really are before the good news can impact us. A true encounter with Christ necessitates coming face to face with who we truly are as miserable sinners. Number two, a Christian's growth in holiness will always be accompanied by a recognition of one's sinfulness. I never knew how sinful I was until I embraced Jesus Christ. 
and begin more, began more and more to see how holy he is. And that light made the darkness even more obvious. The Apostle Paul, even, months before he was executed, in a letter to his young friend, Timothy, wrote this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Might have been the only error Paul made because Paul didn't know me because I am the chief of sinners. I'll give him a break because he wrote this before I came along. So it was true then. Paul was aware of who he really was, which made the good news really, really good news. And finally, final lesson to take into this week, increasing recognition of one's own need for the mercy of God will result in increasing appreciation of the abounding grace we have in Christ. The more you recognize your own need for mercy, the more you will recognize how gracious God is to you. And as a result, the more you will extend grace to others. If you are an ungracious person, it's because you don't know who you truly are. That's why Jesus came. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is so powerful. It is eternal. It is it is like nothing else we encounter as it reveals to us Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that not a person in here would be casual about their sinfulness. I pray not a person in here would not leave without having some sort of face-to-face encounter with the Logos. that we would see how truly broken, how truly jagged, and how truly desperate our need is. And that recognizing this, we would flee to the true source of light, the Logos, the Word, the power of God, Jesus Christ himself. Thank you for this Gospel of John, these powerful words that you inspired him to write. I ask that each person here would, in his heart, take the truth of these words out into this week and live as Christ commanded us to live, by your grace. Help us to extend to others the grace, in, at least in part, that you extended to us. For all these things, we pray humbly in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.